You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. Last week, we aired part one of our conversation with Alex Joel, scholar-in-residence and adjunct professor at American University's Washington College of Law, as he discussed global data circulation and privacy. This week, we pick back up with the second part of that conversation. Alex wraps up his thoughts on the role of the OECD in shaping global data policy and transitions into the incentives for data localization and how the Schrems cases have shaped the U.S.-EU information-sharing relationship. If you haven't already listened to part one, we encourage you to check that out. As always, thanks for tuning in, and here's Elisa. So let me ask you, though, these principles that come out of these international bodies like OECD, have we sort of embraced it? There have been meaningful outcomes here in the United States as a result of that, like any changes to our laws, binding treaties, sort of maybe voluntary or involuntary shifts by providers in terms of data collection, retention, third-party access, or even deletion. I mean, I know Instagram has the feel-good ad that's running right now. You know, we're really going to do something. What have we gotten in terms of legal structural changes from any of this at this point? There's a narrow answer and a broader answer. So the narrow answer is that this OECD declaration itself is not intended to be binding It is a landmark. It is a breakthrough in terms of getting a declaration of these principles out there. Now, what happens with that declaration is still the subject of additional work. And I'm hopeful the work will continue. Having been in government and worked on these kinds of things from within government, I I know that people are super busy. And once they get something done, they tend to move on to something else, right? So you don't stick with something and then say, let me create more work for myself by imagining what we could do next. They tend, oh, we got that done, we're moving to the next. And it would be a shame if that happened with the OECD declaration because you've got these experts in the room, they got to know each other, they got to trust each other. Let's keep going. Let's figure out what the next step might be. You know, there's a range of next steps that could possibly come out of the OECD declaration, which might eventually in the long term lead to something legally binding. One of the things that I know is already happening is that the OECD declaration is part of what the OECD uses to assess applicants for membership to the OECD. So as I said, there's only 38 member countries, there's going to be more. Mm -hmm. So when a country is trying to become a member of the OECD, they will look at the OECD has already said they will use the declaration as part of their evaluation process for new members. I think another potential way that it could be used is to use it to compare democracies operating under the rule of law, as I said, the OECD member countries with other countries that we don't feel are operating under the rule of law to make that distinction more clear and to see if there are ways to try to change the behavior of those other countries or to better clarify the distinction so people understand that distinction in a more immediate way and to counteract what I fear is this move toward data localization. Let's hit a pause button on that for a minute. And I would just say this, I don't know all 38 countries, members of the OECD, but I will say that I do in recent months, certainly in the last couple of years, feel a mild sense of alarm when I look at some of what is happening to former Soviet member states in Eastern Europe, including Hungary. And I look at somebody like Gorbon, who 
you know, I don't know if they're a part of the OECD, but I do feel a little bit of concern for some of the countries who have stepped up and sort of gotten on the democracy train when it comes to things like data usage right now. I don't know if you register the same sense of alarm. I wonder to the extent that any of these countries are participating in the OECD, what impact that will have on sort of selling the OECD's findings as sort of good first principles. Yeah, I mean, that's a valid point. I'm trying to find the list of countries. But whenever you have a large group of countries involved in a discussion, you will have some countries that are shining examples, (laughs) and you will have some that are not. And how do you deal with that? You could say, you know what, we can't come up with anything that everybody has in common, because some of us aren't doing so good in these areas, right? And I I don't feel like that's the right answer, because then you'll never come up with something. And sometimes it sorts itself out because those governments might not be lasting ones. Or, you know, maybe when you have something like this declaration, it can help in highlighting what is expected and highlighting where the deficiencies are. So I think there's value in that. But yeah, you're absolutely right. There's always governments. I mean, Hungary is a member of the European Union. And so there's, you know, there's issues around how well it's living up to those principles as well. And there's other countries that are also having problems. And the IC has warned that there's backsliding that happens with democracies. And so I think it's a never-ending quest to figure out what to do about that. You mentioned something about data localization. I mean, that's been a conversation. First of all, let's talk about what it is. And then just as a matter of science and data storage, whether that's really even possible and whether or not localizing data in some way would have any efficacy in achieving anything a country might want to vis-a-vis controlling a data set involving, say, their citizens? So data localization is a broad term. It's used to describe different efforts that countries might make to make sure that data that's collected within their country stays within their country, that it's stored and processed there. That's what I would, that people call strict localization. If there is an absolute requirement in the law that data be processed on servers that are only accessible by people in their country, that would be considered strict localization. You don't see that very often. You know, typically it would be national security information. Information about our national security cleared people has to be processed in the country. You know, that's understandable. That's not the kind of data that needs to flow around the world. You know, Russia has in their law a mirroring requirement that, that you have to have a copy of the data in your country. China has a stricter data localization law that basically says if you want to take data out of China, it has to go through, has to be approved and go through certain kinds of reviews, which again, give a lot of discretion to the government. I don't know that they've cracked down on any existing company's ability to take data out of China yet, but they certainly would have that ability in their legal systems. But it tends to come up more in terms of the result of applying your rules, your privacy laws, as an example, which is the area that I'm most familiar with. If data in the recipient country isn't going to be protected in a way that the originating country finds satisfactory, then typically the consequence is that the data will no longer flow. Like they will issue an order to the company saying you can't take data out of the country. So that's sort of conditional data localization. You know, I don't think that countries necessarily want to think of it in terms of data localization as much as, hey, we're protecting privacy. We don't trust you to protect privacy. Therefore, you can't take data about our citizens out of our country. Generally speaking, it's very difficult to localize data and still have it be useful. You are going to do business in other countries. I think I think we want that. We want our countries to come closer together, to be linked together, to have corporations that span borders, to have 
organizations to span borders, to be, have people be able to talk to people around the world. We want an open, interoperable internet that uh, where data can flow freely with trust, you know, to, you know, among trusted governments. These are core principles that the United States has been pushing for years, that the idea of an open society is better for democracy and is better for the United States national security than a series of closed societies. I, and I think, it's just a reality too, right? Yeah, I mean, we reality. have minerals that we need for things in other countries or things that are necessary to the supply chain and operation of American businesses that are in other countries and vice versa. We have things that they need. So I, I don't know how you put some data in a hermetically sealed container. It, I've it never understood be, that. The way it's most easily possible to understand is a, a local business, a mom and pop. They don't need their data to flow around the world. So if it's a mom and pop and you would have it on your laptop in the back and now you want it stored by a company in the cloud, and you don't want your data to flow anywhere. Of course, it wouldn't flow anywhere. But right, you, you right. know, for whatever reason, you're saying I want it stored on a local server in the United States. I don't want my data stored on whatever space you might have available on some other server around the world. I want it only on U.S. data centers. Well, I guess you could architect things to make that possible. If you're doing business around the world, I think it's impossible. And if you're in a consumer-facing social media kind of a thing, individual to individual. I also think that's by definition impossible, right? Because you, you'll you yeah. have, if we're on Zoom and we're talking and you're in Europe and I'm in, in the United States, obviously the data is flowing across borders and it's probably stored for, for performance purposes. It's going to be stored on your server there. It's going to be stored on a server here to this closer to the endpoint so that we don't have lag. I mean, so on the point of efficacy, we've written about this. This goes back to what you learn in law school in first year, on personal jurisdiction and the minimum contacts test, right? I, I hope right. you remember the minimum <laughs> contacts test. And we find that that is also true internationally, that that test, that that idea of minimum contacts is not just U.S. law. It, it is not just international shoe, right? Or <laughs> yes, exactly. So, right. And it applies to companies. So basically the idea is if a business entity has a certain amount of contact with another country, then that business entity is likely going to be subject to the jurisdiction of that other country, right? If you're in Europe and you're doing, and you say, you know what, I don't want to deal with these American tech companies. I want to deal with a European company. And so you just go to a European cloud provider and they say, yes, we store your data here in Europe. Don't worry about it. But you as a company have business operations in the U.S. because you're, the U.S. is a huge market. You'd be foolish not to. Of course, you have business operations there. <laughs> the cloud company has business operations in the U.S. Of course it does. You know, it would be impossible to be successful if it, if they just kept a super small local customer base. Well, then they're likely subject to U.S. jurisdiction be based on minimum sure. contacts. And this principle is in GDPR itself. So the EU wants to extend jurisdiction extraterritorially. If you have a website even that's accessible to people in Europe and you're mm -hmm. direct, you're purposefully, this is the you know, U.S. term, but you are marketing, you are monitoring <laughs> EU residents, because when they look at your website, you know that they looked at your website, you, you've got the ability to, to know how many downloads there have been to Paris or whatever. You are now potentially subject to the jurisdiction of the data protection officials in that country, even if you don't have somebody located in that country yourself. So this idea of extraterritorial jurisdiction and, and access is fairly universal. It's unlikely to change. I mean, where uh, everybody's selling things now via the internet, all communications take place. And the trend is actually in the opposite direction. Let's just talk briefly about the Cloud Act, right? So the Cloud Act comes into effect and it makes it clear 
that under the Stored Communications Act, the government in the United States can access data that's stored in servers outside the country if the person in the United States, you know, you have to have jurisdiction, and then also the person in the United States has possession, custody, or control of the data. Like they can push a button. It doesn't matter where it's stored. If you can push a button, the government can go to you, serve an order, and you have to provide the data. That's the first part of the Cloud Act that everybody focuses on. The second part of the Cloud Act is this idea of an agreement. So the U.S. and the U.K. have entered into a Cloud Act agreement. The U.S. and Australia have entered into a Cloud Act. They're negotiating one with Canada. They're negotiating one with the European Union. What does a Cloud Act agreement do? It enables governments, law enforcement agencies in other countries to directly serve an order on Microsoft and Amazon and Google and Facebook in the United States, directly serve an order to get the content of people's communications as part of their law enforcement investigations. And previously, they had not been able to do that because of the privacy protections in U.S. law, because of the Stored Communications Act says you need a warrant based on probable cause to get the access to the content of those communications. And so there was a huge problem and a huge backlog of requests from other countries, their law enforcement agencies. Because, again, think about it, right? The, these U.S. companies are super successful. The criminals in those countries are using American tech to communicate. So the law enforcement agencies in those countries want access to that data from U.S. companies. They're pushing hard to get these agreements in place so they can facilitate cross-border access to the data held in the United States and bring it back into their countries for law enforcement investigations. What do we have in our law? We have something that's, that's a little bit similar to GDPR in the sense that, well, we'll do that if you meet our tests. We have to be satisfied that your country has adequate protections in, in essence, that you have certain rule of law kinds of things in your laws so that we're not just giving out data. And the other thing we say is you can't seek data about Americans. And when we try to seek data from your providers, we can't seek data about your citizens, but we can seek data about our own citizens by going directly to your providers. The point there being simply, even as there's people talking about data localization, there's also a countervailing trend, particularly in the law enforcement world, to facilitate cross-border data access in order to conduct their investigations. Yeah, I think my money is going to be on the second one there. But almost a decade ago, the European court, it's been a while, now um, issued an opinion in a case called Schrems. And Schrems, it's been that long ago, hasn't it, Alex? And then there was the second iteration, Schrems, too. And I will tell you, I mean, I'm not naming names, but I think we both know a particular attorney who described both opinions as the most tedious things he had ever read in his life. <laughs> you want to talk about, like, what did those cases talk about? I mean, we I think maybe people remember that Schrems wanted to be forgotten, and you can talk about what that means. But there was a sense in reading these opinions, at least this was my perspective at the time, that I didn't really get a sense that the judge who authored, or was the principal author of at least Schrems 1, was really all that clear on how data is handled or how it transmits the internet didn't quite understand internet traffic or some of the other sort of aspects of the business model of the free information or so-called free information that transits the internet. So you want to talk a little bit about those and kind of where we are right now and whether or not there have been any consequences? Because those at the time were, I think, considered fairly seismic in their implications. Yes. Still are. We don't hear talked about very much because we've reached a solution for now. And I say for now because there's going to be a Schrems 3. Max Schrems has said he's going to challenge the EU-US data privacy framework 
which has been worked out and which has put data flows back on the same footing it was before. And the reason that's happened is the U.S. made changes to its legal framework. The U.S. issued Executive Order 14086, which is a big deal. Based on those changes, the European Commission was able to say that the U.S. now provides protections which are essentially equivalent to what the data would have gotten had it, had it been in the European Union. That itself is a super complicated thing to explain because the European Union does not have jurisdiction over the national security activities of its own member states. So basically, the Schrems cases have held that they're strictly applying GDPR based on the Charter of Fundamental Rights. You look at this charter and that tells you that's their Bill of Rights. And there's a couple of different articles involved, but the European court was looking at whether or not the rights that are enshrined in that charter find expression in our legal framework when it comes to national security access to data. In the litigation, it was pointed out to the court that, okay, we understand you're looking at the charter, but keep in mind, you remember, right, that the European Union itself, including the charter and everything, every instrument that comes out of the European Union has no applicability to national security of your member states. Because when the member states of the European Union came together to form the European Union, and this will come as no surprise to an American national security lawyer, they carved out national security from the treaty. So the right. treaty explicitly carves out national security. So this was pointed out to the European court and the, and the court said, well, in essence, it said, that's not relevant to us because this isn't an activity, a national security activity of a European member state. You're right, the European member states activities in national security are not our, in our jurisdiction, but we're not talking about a European Union member state activity. We're talking about US national security activity with respect to company data that's being taken out of the country. And that has to meet our standards. Because the European court itself has not been directly ruling on national security within the European Union because it's been carved out, mm-hmm. it was very, as you point out, unclear what is the standard. Like, okay, so what, what is the standard that you think we should be following? So they were more clear in Schrems too, and they basically said there has to be, remember we referred to before to necessity and proportionality. So there has to be more on necessity and proportionality, I'm very much oversimplifying. And there has to be redress, something about redress. Mm-hmm. Individuals have to have the ability to obtain redress. It's in our charter. We expect to see it in the U.S. legal framework. What you guys came up with before was not anywhere close to being enough. So we need to see that. So coming out of that, the U.S. team and the European Commission worked feverishly on trying to come up with a framework that actually checked those boxes in a substantive way. I'm not saying just mm-hmm. as a matter of form, but substantively met those requirements. And so in the new executive order, there's language on necessity and proportionality, which I think is very strong. And I think effectively bridges this gap between how the U.S. would think of necessary and proportion and how the European legal system thinks of it. Mm -hmm. And also a redress mechanism that's available to the EU. So if an individual feels that their data was handled in violation of the commitments the U.S. made in the executive order, they can submit a complaint that goes to the civil liberties protection officer for the DNI, and then it can be appealed to a new data protection review court, which is a new court established in the Department of Justice. They've already named the judges. These are independent administrative law. I think we would think of them as administrative law judges, but they're guaranteed independence from the president. They can only be fired for cause, in essence. They adjudicate the complaints in a binding way. Now, the problem is, of course, because it's national security, the complainant will never know. So you submit a complaint, the people who have clearance take it seriously, 
make sure the data was collected properly. If there was data collected yeah. properly, make sure you were properly targeted if you were targeted. And if you're not, they make sure the data has been corrected and, or purged. And so it's you have to trust that the system is working behind the scenes. And that's why you also have oversight over that system. I think that makes a lot of sense. And that is how redress has to happen if you are going to keep certain things secret. I wonder how the court will see things now that the conflict in Ukraine has happened, because there's been a tone change in a lot of things that we have seen coming out of these European bodies. And I think the tone change has come to the point right now where they're beginning to realize the value of having an ally like the United States and these companies that can provide them with information that may be important to their national defense, ultimately. Yeah, I wonder how Shrims is going to be received right now. It might be a different climate. I think the climate matters. I'm not going to say it's, it's certainly not dispositive, but judges are human beings. Mm-hmm. When they heard the Snowden stuff. You know, they were cranked up, right? Right. Very cranked up. As a, understandably, like, you know, the reporting mm-hmm. was very heated about that in the media and everything else. Mm-hmm. The European media had its own set of issues. In the U.S., we were very focused on the 215 program and collecting telephone records. Well, those were U.S. telephone records. So that right. wasn't the big news overseas. The big news overseas was much more about, hey, did, did the NSA spy on, you know, Merkel's telephone? Do these PowerPoint slides we're seeing show that NSA is collecting all of our data and, and analyzing it all the time mm-hmm. and things like that? There was a lot of speculation and concern. And I do think the atmosphere matters. And I think it, it's helpful. The reminder that the U.S. has made a huge commitment to NATO. And mm-hmm. if a NATO country is invaded, U.S. troops will be there. The yeah, U.S. Yeah. nuclear umbrella covers NATO countries. I mean, these are huge security commitments and are hugely important to European countries. And I do think that helps To me, it reminds people of what the priorities are and reminds people we ultimately are very similar to each other. And what we need to be focusing on is how do we change the behavior of these autocratic regimes, these aggressive regimes? What do we do about them together in concert with each other? I think there's been positive changes with what the U.S. has done. I think all of that's good. But at some point, we need to turn our focus to other things that are higher on the priority list, in my view, and whether or not Google is collecting particular things when you when you run Google Analytics as some kind of code, some kind of numerical designator being processed in a server in the United States. I don't feel like that is the highest priority focus in terms of threats <laughs> to democracy. No, no. There's almost a Maslow's pyramid of needs thing happening right now. There's a different hunger. Let's talk for a second. I do think national security to a degree and maybe hanging in the balance when it comes to digital information. And, you know, we are a national security law podcast. You've really hit a lot of the sort of national security issues involved in these data discussions internationally. Before I get to this ultimate question of whether our defense apparatus is really dealing with the digital threats that we face right now effectively, Let's focus on some recent findings. First one is the NIC, which is the National Intelligence Council. They've made an assessment. Do you know what they have, in, at least in their declassified assessment, what have they said about this? Yeah, so the National Intelligence Council, they issued an assessment on digital repression, digital authoritarianism, and trends around the world. And there's also the National Intelligence Council does something called Global Trends 2040, where they played out a scenario that involved countries retreating behind silos, which would in turn favor authoritarian regimes. 
their assessment is consistent with a lot of the academic studies that I've been reading on this topic, which is that authoritarian regimes, they seek greater control over data and technology to better solidify their power. And this happens in, in a couple of different ways. We already talked about China trying to control the actual technical means for accessing the internet, you know, which companies are allowed to operate within them. They're also seeking access to data to feed their AI algorithms and, you know, training data. Data allows an authoritarian regime to better monitor their own population. So they certainly want to turn the technology and the collection apparatus inward, but they're also interested in outward to better access data that they think is relevant for their national security and helps them be more effective on the world stage. So malign influence campaigns is a lot, and in many mm-hmm. cases, driven by data and understanding how to blend in with whatever narratives are, are they feel will take hold in a particular country to help influence elections or, you know, otherwise seek results that they want to seek. Identifying dissidents or, and their supporters and people talking to them are outside of the country. So this is the kind of thing that the NIC assessment talks about. It's also discussed in the annual threat assessment that the DNI issues every year, also, you know, that the NIC supports. Again, it's they're waving a flag around this issue of digital repression that they're seeing as real growing and that extends across the borders of these countries. And it's consistent, like I said, with, with a lot of academic studies that have been coming out over the last year, many years, it's been at least, you know, several years, where the academic community has been saying, hey, you know, these are trends that are happening in these authoritarian regimes that are using spyware or using other mm-hmm. ways to survey, you know, taking advantage of the technological tools to surveil their population. And so the, the, the question really becomes, what do we do about that? As democracies, we're all united on this issue and concerned about that. It's interesting because to the extent that U.S. is fighting with its allies in Europe, you know, who are also many of them NATO members, right? You're creating dissension within NATO around the importance of these tools, which are essential, the U.S. says, to national security. Like, look at the 702 debate. The U.S. has repeatedly said 702 is essential to national security, not only of the U.S., but of our allies. Why is it essential? Why are there concerns around 702? Well, because the 702 authorities can be used to access data held by these companies, right? The companies we've been talking about. It does make you realize that that this kind of rupture on, on these issues is not helpful when we're thinking about the adversarial threats that we face as democracies. We have to find ways to work together and to be closer to each other. Totally agree with that. But the second part of that was the malign influence. And, you know, we're staring down the barrel of another federal election, another U.S. presidential election where malign influence campaigns. I mean, I can think of countries right now who would have an interest in campaign going one way or another for their own interest. For example, you just mentioned that, you know, the strength of NATO right now, the significance of NATO, which was not the favorite institution of the former President Trump. Right. And so those interested in ending NATO, we're seeing in NATO weakened, would certainly prefer to have him come back in, I would imagine. You know, there are probably other countries that would prefer to see President Biden remain in office for their own interests. Um, I think it would be really wonderful if we brought NATO more directly into these conversations where we're talking about norms, we're talking about what adversaries are doing. We're talking about, you know, the importance of like-minded democracies, you know, supporting each other and getting closer together and working out norms to build trust between countries. Because I do think NATO is where the rubber meets the road, at least on the European side. 
on the Asian side, you worry about what happens if and when China, you know, decides to do something that could trigger at least very, very serious consideration of a U.S. military response in China, maybe with a threat to Taiwan or something like when U.S. military force is viewed as an important peacekeeping function, both in Europe and in Asia, and the security minded folks in these countries are in close conversation, close coordination, close discussion, and important intelligence is gathered, of course, directly from satellites and other you know, sources and methods that the governments have, but also from the data that is processed by companies. I don't think it's an accident that the conversation we had about national security access to data happened at the OECD. Like the OECD is not the natural place. Like you said, you know, you weren't familiar with it. Many in the national security community, most lawyers that we deal with in our community at the at the conferences we attend, et cetera, probably don't focus on the OECD either. I know that I didn't, I hadn't been focusing on the OECD, but they're the experts on how companies and how the private sector behaves across borders and what are those issues. And I think that is becoming an important thing to understand for national security legal professionals is how private sector entities operate around the world and to what extent are the legal regimes creating unnecessary friction and conflict? To what extent do we as national security lawyers have a role to play in being more transparent and more clear about our rules and in also thinking about how our rules are going to be viewed by other countries and how can mm-hmm. we shape those rules in ways that would be more consistent with how other countries you know, expect these things to happen. We've been talking about sort of the deficit in anything coming out of Congress on this. We've also talked about how far Congress can go with respect to national security, given the fact that that authority really seems to be squarely with the executive under Article 2. But are there big picture steps? Are there big moves that Congress can take with respect to some of these data flows and the way they're handled? that you think would be helpful in the direction of both preserving privacy rights and our need to protect ourselves in a digital and international ecosystem that we all inhabit every single day? So I I would put it both on Congress and the executive, right? So the executive, for its part, can make sure we're following a consistent and coherent whole of government approach. That all of the agencies that are involved in these discussions understand ultimately what the national security strategy calls for. You know, we're in a competition, a global great power competition. We want our model of an open and interoperable internet and free flow of data with trust to be the norm that becomes accepted around the world in competition right now with competing norms that are being put forward by other countries. So we we definitely want a whole of government understanding of that and pushing in that direction from an executive agency's perspective. From Congress, I think it's important to be realistic in terms of what's achievable. But the, and even what I'm going to say here is... Yeah, is let's not, do that. Let's be realistic. <laughs> it's not necessarily all that realistic, but comprehensive privacy legislation. Even if the comprehensive privacy legislation is not going to directly address national security in terms of, like, it's not going to amend FISA through comprehensive privacy legislation, but it will establish this baseline... First of all, it has hugely important symbolic value where now countries around the world can say, okay, the U.S. finally has comprehensive privacy legislation. It's looking at these big tech companies. It's looking at all companies in a comprehensive way to regulate and help protect privacy, right? So that's that's hugely important. It also helps the companies because it gives them one standard rather than having to deal with all the different state standards. It also helps in terms of the commercial data issue, the data broker issue. Like what are the rules? 
We don't want companies to be able to freely sell data to adversaries and not be able to sell data to the U.S. government. You know, like the only people they can't sell to in the whole world <laughs> is the U.S. government. That should change. And then you can try to help address that through comprehensive privacy legislation. And the other thing I'll say is on issues like AI, on issues like tech regulation in general, it would be so wonderful if we could return to a position of leadership and not be left always waiting for other entities to take the lead and then us reacting to it. So right now on AI, for example, the EU is already on the verge of adopting legislation on that, once again, ahead of the U.S. And yet the main subjects of those regulations are going to be U.S. companies. So we're ceding the regulation of tech companies to the EU because they can move more quickly than, than Congress has been able to do. So I would ask them to get their act together on those things. I hope they're listening, all of them, every single <laughs> member. I will say this. I did see that DIA has come out with an AI governance policy, so good for them. I know they had a big announcement. Hopefully there's some sort of an unclassified version of that, but I think it'd be fun to talk to you about it once we get our hands on it, Alex. And it's always a pleasure to have you on, and I hope you come back and see us. Thank you so much. My guest tonight has been Alex Joel. He is the scholar in residence and adjunct professor with the Technology, Law and Security Program at the American University's Washington College of Law. He previously served as the Civil Liberties Protection Officer for the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. He was the first person to ever hold that role. And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. If you had feedback for us, you can reach us on social media, one of those big companies like Facebook, Threads, and Twitter. We're not calling it X, forget it. Our handle is always at ABA NATSEC, or you can email us the old-fashioned way. Reach out to us via nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Our producer and writer is Mia Lisa Poteet. I'm always here in my individual capacity. Our editor and co-producer is Francis Berkham. My co-producer is also Holly McMahon, but of course, we're always getting the help of the incredible members of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security, without whom this podcast would not be possible. So we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.